Chapter Eighteen of *The Room in the Dragon Volant*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. *The Room in the Dragon Volant* by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter Eighteen, The Churchyard. Our dinner was really good. So were the wines. Better, perhaps, at this out-of-the-way inn than at some of the more pretentious hotels in Paris. The moral effect of a really good dinner is immense. We all felt it. The serenity and good-nature that follow are more solid and comfortable than the tumultuous benevolences of Bacchus. My friends were happy, therefore, and very chatty, which latter relieved me of the trouble of talking, and prompted them to entertain me and one another incessantly with agreeable stories and conversation, of which, until suddenly a subject emerged which interested me powerfully, I confess so much were my thoughts engaged elsewhere, I heard next to nothing. "'Yes,' said Carmillac, continuing a conversation which had escaped me, "'there was another case besides that Russian nobleman, odder still. I remembered it this morning, but cannot recall the name. He was a tenant of the very same room. By the by, monsieur, might it not be as well?' he added, turning to me with a laugh, half-joke, whole earnest, as they say. "'If you were to get into another apartment, now that the house is no longer crowded, that is, if you mean to make any stay here.' A thousand thanks. No, I'm thinking of changing my hotel, and I can run into town so easily at night. And though I stay here for this night at least, I don't expect to vanish like those others. But you say there is another adventure of the same kind connected with the same room. Do let us hear it. But take some wine first. The story he told was curious. It happened, said Carmillac, as well as I recollect before either of the other cases. A French gentleman—I wish I could remember his name—the son of a merchant came to this inn, the Dragon Volant, and was put by the landlord into the same room of which we have been speaking—your apartment, monsieur. He was by no means young, past forty, and very far from good-looking. The people here said that he was the ugliest man, and the most good-natured that ever lived. He played on the fiddle, sang, and wrote poetry. His habits were odd and desultory. He would sometimes sit all day in his room writing, singing, and fiddling, and go out at night for a walk. An eccentric man. He was by no means a millionaire, but he had a modicum bonum, you understand, a trifle more than half a million of francs. He consulted his stockbroker about investing his money in foreign stocks, and drew the entire sum from his banker. You now have the situation of affairs when the catastrophe occurred. "'Pray fill your glass,' I said. "'Dutch courage, monsieur, to face the catastrophe,' said Whistlewick, filling his own. "'Now, that was the last that ever was heard of his money,' resumed Carmillac. "'You shall hear about himself. The night after this financial operation he was seized with a poetic frenzy. He sent for the then landlord of this house, and told him that he long meditated an epic, and meant to commence it that night, and that he was on no account to be disturbed until nine o'clock in the morning.' He had two pairs of wax candles, a little cold supper on a side-table, his desk open, paper enough upon it to contain the entire Henriad, and a proportionate store of pens and ink. Seated at this desk, he was seen by the waiter who brought him a cup of coffee at nine o'clock, at which time the intruder said he was writing fast enough to set fire to the paper. That was his phrase. He did not look up. He appeared too much engrossed. But when the waiter came back, half an hour afterwards, the door was locked and the poet from within answered that he must not be disturbed. Away went the garçon, 
and the next morning at nine o'clock knocked at his door, and receiving no answer, looked through the keyhole. The lights were still burning, the window-shutters were closed as he had left them. He renewed his knocking, knocked louder. No answer came. He reported this continued and alarming silence to the innkeeper, who, finding that his guest had not left his key in the lock, succeeded in finding another that opened it. The candles were just giving up the ghost in their sockets, but there was light enough to ascertain that the tenant of the room was gone. The bed had not been disturbed, the window-shutter was barred. He must have let himself out, and locking the door on the inside, put the key in his pocket, and so made his way out of the house. Here, however, was another difficulty. The dragon volant shuts its doors and made all fast at twelve o'clock, and after that hour no one could leave the house except by obtaining the key and letting himself out, and of necessity leaving the door unsecured, or else by collusion and aid of some person in the house. Now it happened that, some time after the doors were secured, at half-past twelve, a servant who had not been apprised of his order to be left undisturbed, seeing a light shine through the keyhole, knocked at the door to inquire whether the poet wanted anything. He was very little obliged to his disturber, and dismissed him with a renewed charge that he was not to be interrupted again during the night. The incident established the fact that he was in the house after the doors had been locked and barred. The innkeeper himself kept the keys, and swore that he found them hung on the wall above his head in his bed, in their usual place in the morning, and that nobody could have taken them away without awakening him. That was all we could discover. The Count de saint Alire, to whom this house belongs, was very active and very much chagrined. But nothing was discovered. "'And nothing heard since of the epic poet?' I asked. "'Nothing. Not the slightest clue. He never turned up again. I suppose he is dead. If he is not, he must have got into some devilish bad scrape, of which we have heard nothing, that compelled him to abscond with all the secrecy and expedition in his power. All that we know for certain is that, having occupied the room in which you sleep, he vanished, nobody ever knew how, and was never heard from since.' "'You have now mentioned three cases,' I said, "'and all from the same room.' Yes, all equally unintelligible. When men are murdered, the great and immediate difficulty the assassins encounter is how to conceal the body. It is very hard to believe that three persons should have been consecutively murdered in the same room, and their body so effectually disposed of, that no trace of them was ever discovered. From this we passed to other topics, and the grave Monsieur Carmillac amused us with a perfectly prodigious collection of scandalous anecdote which his opportunities in the police department had enabled him to accumulate. My guests happily had engagements in Paris, and left me about ten. I went up to my room, and looked out upon the grounds of the Chateau de la Carque. The moonlight was broken by clouds, and the view of the park in this desultory light acquired a melancholy and fantastic character. The strange anecdotes recounted of the room in which I stood by Monsieur Camillac returned vaguely upon my mind drowning in sudden shadows the gaiety of the more frivolous stories with which he had followed them. I looked round me in the room that lay in ominous gloom, with an almost disagreeable sensation. I took my pistols now with an undefined apprehension that they might be really needed before my return to-night. This feeling, be it understood, in no wise chilled my ardour. Never had my enthusiasm mounted higher. My adventure absorbed and carried me away but it added a strange and stern excitement to the expedition. I loitered for a time in my room. I had ascertained the exact point at which the little churchyard lay. It was about a mile away. I did not wish to reach it earlier than necessary. I stole quietly out and sauntered along the road to my left, 
and thence entered a narrower track still to my left, which skirting the park wall and describing a circuitous route all the way, under grand old trees, passes the ancient cemetery. That cemetery is embowered in trees, and occupies little more than half an acre of ground to the left of the road, interposing between it and the park of the Chateau de la Carque. Here at this haunted spot I paused and listened. The place was utterly silent. A thick cloud had darkened the moon, so that I could distinguish little more than the outlines of near objects, and that vaguely enough, and sometimes, as it were, floating in black fog, the white surface of a tombstone emerged. Among the forms that met my eye against the iron-grey of the horizon were some of those shrubs or trees that grow like our junipers, some six feet high, in form like a miniature poplar, with the darker foliage of the yew. I do not know the name of the plant, but I have often seen it in such funereal places. Knowing that I was a little too early, I sat down upon the edge of a tombstone to wait, as for aught I knew the beautiful Countess might have wise reasons for not caring that I should enter the grounds of the chateau earlier than she had appointed. In the listless state induced by waiting, I sat there, with my eyes on the object straight before me, which chanced to be that faint black outline I have described. It was right before me, about half a dozen steps away. The moon now began to escape from under the skirt of the cloud that had hid her face for so long, and as the light gradually improved, the tree on which I had been lazily staring began to take a new shape. It was no longer a tree, but a man standing motionless. Brighter and brighter grew the moonlight, clearer and clearer the image became, and at last stood out perfectly distinctly. It was Colonel Gaillard. Luckily he was not looking toward me. I could only see him in profile, but there was no mistaking the white moustache, the farouche visage, and the gaunt six-foot stature. There he was, his shoulder toward me, listening and waiting, plainly for some signal or person expected, straight in front of him. If he were by chance to turn his eyes in my direction, I knew that I must reckon upon an instantaneous renewal of the combat only commenced in the hall of the Belle Etoile. In any case, could malignant fortune have posted at this place and hour a more dangerous watcher? What ecstasy to him, by a single discovery, to hit me so hard, and blast the Countess de saint Elia, whom he seemed to hate! He raised his arm. He whistled softly. I heard an answering whistle as low. And, to my relief, the Colonel advanced in the direction of this sound, widening the distance between us at every step. And immediately I heard talking, but in a low and cautious key. I recognised, I thought, even so, the peculiar voice of Gaillard. I stole softly forward in the direction in which those sounds were audible. In doing so, I had, of course, to use the extremest caution. I thought I saw a hat above a jagged piece of ruined wall, and then a second. Yes, I saw two hats conversing. The voices came from under them. They moved off, not in the direction of the park, but of the road and I lay along the grass, peeping over a grave, as a skirmisher might observing the enemy. One after the other the figures emerged full into view as they mounted the stile at the roadside. The colonel, who was last, stood on the wall for a while looking about him, and then jumped down on the road. I heard their steps and talk as they moved away together, with their backs toward me, in the direction which led them farther and farther from the Dragon Volant. I waited until these sounds were quite lost in the distance before I entered the park. I followed the instructions I had received from the Countess de saint Alire, 
and made my way among brushwood and thickets to the point nearest the ruinous temple, and crossed the short intervening space of open ground rapidly. I was now once more under the gigantic boughs of the old lime and chestnut-trees. Softly, and with a heart throbbing fast, I approached the little structure. The moon was now shining steadily, pouring down its radiance on the soft foliage, and here and there mottling the verdure under my feet. I reached the steps. I was among its worn marble shafts. She was not there, nor in the inner sanctuary, the arched windows of which were screened almost entirely by masses of ivy. The lady had not yet arrived. End of chapter 18